Take your Bibles with me, please, and open them back to the New Testament letter of Colossians, chapter 1, back into verses 9 through 14. While you're turning there, I'll tell you a, a story that happened to me this week. Um, being a parent is never a dull moment in, in that journey or adventure. Emberly likes to wake up pretty early, and one particular morning this week, she woke up early enough that I basically let her out of her cage and then went back to bed myself. Uh, I opened the door and said, Emberly, give me a minute. Let me lay back down and collect myself and my thoughts. And so she's pretty good about standing in our doorway begging me to get out of bed. And she was doing that. And I said, well, I need a big kiss to get out of bed. It's not going to happen any other way. And so she comes up. That's a typical morning routine for me and and her, and she comes up and puts her lips against my cheek, sweet as can be, presses as hard as she can, takes a huge breath to give this big kiss, and then sneezes. <laughs> and in that moment, I thought, who is responsible for teaching this girl her manners? Because one of us have failed. Moments like that are comical and fun, and... Uh, they etch their, themselves in your memory in unique ways, but they're also good lessons to remind us we all need to be instructed in things in life. Uh, sometimes we need to be instructed on what is acceptable and not acceptable, uh, but we all need instruction and guidance and lessons. Most of the New Testament is built that way by God's grace to us. He, he gifts us with instruction. He points us in the right direction. He doesn't have expectations and then not communicate them. He has expectations for our lives and then communicates them to us so that we might follow through and honor him with our lives. So much, of, again, of the New Testament is geared and written in that way. And certainly that is the text we come to consider this morning in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Last week, we dissected as best as we could verse 9 and verse 10. If you remember, the first part of verse 10 is the point of this whole passage. It's the desire of the apostle, his expressed desire for this church, but also for every Christian, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. He starts off in verse 9, uh, continuing a, a description of his regular prayer habits for this church. Really, the whole section is uh, not only his desires, but his desires expressed in prayers. But today, as we come into verse 10, and then later in the next couple of weeks as we consider 10 through 14, he, he transitions a little, although he's still praying for these things, he's more so exhorting things now in their life or encouraging certain, certain things within their lives. Verse 9, as we looked last week, he's regularly praying and petitioning God, asking that God would fill them up, fill them to the brim, saturate and consume them with the knowledge of his will. And we highlighted that that is not a specific will in the sense of what God wants out of our lives individually. That's more of the broad, general, overarching will of God. Uh, Paul wants the church to be grounded in the clear, dominant will of God. And what is that will? It's expressed in His Son, Christ Jesus. The redemption of sinners. In other words, Paul is saying, I want you to know and be grounded and filled up with the truth of the gospel. That you know it's God's will, it's God's purpose, it's God's design, God's plan, God's desire that sinners be saved. So I ask God that you would be filled up with the knowledge of the gospel in all spiritual wisdom 
and understanding. And we highlighted that word spiritual there. Uh, these things are given by the Spirit of God alone. And they are right understanding and right application. So Paul writes to this church and says, I, I plead with the Lord that you would be filled up and grounded and saturated in the truth of the gospel with the Spirit's help to understand and apply it in your lives. Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. So now, as we come into this part of verse 10, with that prayer being the foundation, as I said, we move into the exhortation area of the text, essentially asking the question, what does it look like to live a life uh, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, to walk in such a manner? What does that actually look like? Put some, put some flesh on those bones for us, Paul. We will begin this morning looking at the first two things that he expresses, the first of four. The first two of four, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. We have found these words and this phrase coupled together and used already in this chapter. Verse 6, Paul has used those words to describe the gospel. Particularly and specifically as the gospel goes out to the unbelieving world. He highlights the gospel in verse 5. And he says, this gospel has come to you, in verse 6, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. It's an active message, an active gospel. It does bear results. It has produce to, to its uh, message. It produces something in the world and in you, and it increases something in the world and in you. And he begins now, even in verse 10, to continue the, that language, continue that thought, and, and even flesh it out a little bit. Because again, it's explicit, explicitly connect, connected back to verse 9, the truth of the gospel. It also bears fruit and increases in certain ways, not just in the world as it goes forth, but in the believer's life continually. So we are able to say as we come into verse 10, these first marks, really all the marks, that help us to live a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, can only be accomplished by the work of the gospel in our lives. So as we consider the apostles' exhortation or the Lord's commands as expressed in Scripture, we're never to consider them as something we must just simply try harder at. We must always consider them as outpourings or results of the gospel's work in our lives. As the gospel goes forth and bears fruit and increases in the world, so it still continues to bear fruit and increases in our lives. So let, let me say it maybe a little bit more clearly and frankly. There is absolutely no way that you can please the Lord or bear these marks that Paul describes in this passage apart from saving faith in Jesus. There's no amount of bearing fruit that you can try to accomplish. No amount of trying to increase in the knowledge of God that will honor God with your life apart from saving faith in Christ. Apart from being a born again Christian in Christ by believing the gospel truth. 
you must have a saving relationship with our Lord as your bottom line foundation if you are to ever attempt at living a life pleasing to Him. Faith and repentance must be continual hallmarks of your life if you're going to please God. But if those things are true of you, if you are a born-again Christian, if faith and repentance is real for you, then you and I are called to the most enjoyable calling that there is. To join God in His work in this world and live in a way that pleases and honors Him. As I said last week, I say again at the beginning of this, and I, I want to make clear, in no way, shape, or form is Paul calling us to earn favor or please God in the sense of earning our salvation by the things that he describes. Again, they are outworkings of the gospel only. So let's consider the first thing that he has to mention there in verse 10. It is bearing fruit. What does it look like? To live a life worthy of the Lord. What does it look like to please Him with the way we walk and live in this, on this earth in this time? Well, first, it's bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work pleases the Lord. I think there are three reasons for that that I want to try to bring out this morning. The first one of those is this. Good works are really an act of obedience. It is the responsibility of the Christian to be doing good works. This, this perversion that has influenced our culture and our church life so significantly that says that you can profess faith in Christ and then have no devotion to Him in your life whatsoever is a total lie and foreign to the New Testament and the rest of Scripture. By the very nature of being born again, we're made new creatures. And being new creatures, we have something new about us, right? New desires and new pleasures and new activities. We have a responsibility. There's no such thing as an inactive Christian faith. That's why Christ uses the term weak faith or little faith, but never inactive. Christian faith produces something within us. It produces a responsibility within us. Expectations for us. And those things are many. But chiefly among them would be the good works of God. You and I are to do good works as an act of obedience. We don't normally do this on a Sunday morning. But I do want to do it today to try to show you um, how significant God views the good works of Christians. So we're going to look at several different passages most notably, James chapter 2. Flip over to James chapter 2 with me, if you would. Verse 14. Let's consider from a few other passages what God has to say about our good works as Christians. James's whole argument here in chapter 2, verse 14 through 26, is to say that the result of a real faith is works. Works that honor God. Works that come from God. Verse 14, he asks the question, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, 
Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. There's a lot going on there in that passage. Essentially what James is getting at and the argument he's trying to make is lip service is never enough. Real faith that's induced and put in you by God produces works that honor God. It produces an activity. It's an active faith, a living faith, a working faith. Real faith that comes from God manifests itself in this life. And it manifests itself in ways that bring God glory. Lip service is never enough. Good works are important enough to God that he says through James, they are the evidence of a real faith. James is not removing the necessity of faith to be born again and to walk with God. What he's saying is real faith will evident itself, evidence itself through the works of the one who professes faith. Paul says something similar, different language, Ephesians chapter 2 different language but the same principle I think in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 he says we're saved to do good works verse 10 talking about the new believer who's no longer uh, walking in the way of the world but now saved by the grace of Christ walking with Christ verse 10 he says for we are his workmanship as Christians created in Christ Jesus for good works The New Testament makes it abundantly clear. Good works and saving faith in Christ go hand in hand. Not in the sense that your good works produce your faith, but again that your faith produces good works. So much so that the New Testament is even concerned with good works in our relationship together as Christians. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 we're commanded and encouraged Let us consider how to stir up one another to both love and good works. The very way we relate to one another has involved within it the command to encourage one another to produce good God-glorifying works in our lives. Titus chapter 2 verse 7. Leaders in the church are supposed to model good works. 
Set the example of good works. Why? So that the believers in the church might also do good works that glorify God. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. That those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. I want you to insist. I want you to teach. I want you to instruct. I want you to interrupt and invade people's lives with the truth of God that they might eventually be devoted, dedicated, committed to good works. Verse 14 of the same chapter, Titus chapter 3. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. We don't want to be unfruitful people. So the New Testament encourages us to learn to devote ourselves to good works. Learn what good works are. Learn how to do them and learn to devote yourself to them. Even specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, Paul tells Timothy to instruct the rich people, rich believers, not to hoard their money and use it for their own fleshly desires, but specifically to use their blessings for good works. There are passages all over the Bible that spur us on to good works, to be doing the work of God, to produce good works as a real result of sincere, real faith in Christ. All of that to say, and all of that time spent to come down to this point, not even considering the vast majority of other texts that, that encourage us and spur us on to some sort of good work. All of that to say this, good works for you and I as born-again Christians are not optional. Not in any way, shape, or form. And if your faith only extends to sitting in these chairs on a Sunday morning, then it's likely you don't have a real faith. If your Christianity only goes this far, then there's a major disconnect between you and the New Testament. A major disconnect between what God says is a Christian and what you profess with your mouth and believe with your mind. Why is that the case? Because knowing Jesus so transforms our lives and so changes our desires, we want every area of our lives to ooze the glories of God. And we do that through good works. It is your calling from God. It is your expectation from God. Because your good works done in the name of Christ out of sincere motivation from a born again heart bring immense glory to God. They tell a dying and lost world that there is a real God who produces such a transforming work in a person's life that there's no way they could take credit for, for it. 
Only God can get the credit for the things that they do. No person can love like that. No person can serve like that. No person can care like that. No person can speak like that. No person can have gentleness like that. No person can have compassion like that. And on and on and on and on if it were not for God in their life. If it were not for the transforming power of the gospel. Good works are not optional for us. They are an act of obedience so that God might be glorified through our actions. Also, good works are often the avenue to sharing the gospel, aren't they? I often think of Acts chapter 3, the passage of verses 1 through 8 through there. It's, it's really much longer than that. But in that section, Peter and John are going to the temple to pray. The very infancy years of the church. And there's a beggar on the way to the temple sitting outside the gate that's customary. And he's, he's crippled. And he can't work, so he begs for money. What does Peter and John do in that account? They look at him and they say, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And what's the man do? He leaps up for joy. And he goes into the temple singing the praises of God. And everybody recognizes God has done something miraculous there. Peter and John are doing a miraculous work, an apostolic work. They're healing, but it's the nature of their work that I want to highlight. They're doing good things to those who need help, but they're doing it in the name of Jesus. Why? So that they might be puffed up as super Christians? No way. It's so that God might get the credit for the, the work being done. That they might advance the gospel, the agenda of Christ. So they do good works to glorify God, that they are now new people who serve His agenda, but they also do good works that they might share the message of God, that He wants to do the same transforming work in others as He's done in us. So it's my position that our good works are never merely for social reasons only. Though they may begin there, they are actually meant to be an opportunity for the Christian to proclaim the gospel. I think if our social works, our good works, stop short of doing them in the name of Christ, giving credit to God, we have failed. We do good works as an act of obedience, but we do them in the name of God and of Jesus Christ specifically that he might be glorified and the gospel might go forth. That church is what ministry is. That's ministry in a nutshell. It's not programs and it's not certain methods and, and styles. Ministry is serving in the name of God for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. So, be salt and light in this world. Be a visible and observable picture of the heart of God to those around us by being obedient to the command of God. Engage in ministry. Involve yourself in the work of the church on behalf of Christ. Evangelize and disciple and serve and care for and teach. Do all the things you find our Lord doing in the Gospels. That is your expectation. That is your calling. And that is the power of the Gospel in your life. 
So first, good works are an act of obedience. Secondly, let me say, good works, as I've alluded to already, display real gospel transformation in your life. Good works done rightly in the name of God, done sincerely, demonstrate Christ's saving work and lordship over you. Here's the simple reality that the Bible itself teaches. Though you may be a good actor for a time, our outward witness demonstrates inward realities. What we spend our time doing, what we give ourselves over to do, what we involve ourselves in, all of that tells the people around us what's actually important to you. And ultimately, it reveals the condition of your heart. Outward witness demonstrates inward reality. So let me ask a sobering question. Does your outward work demonstrate a life lived by the Spirit under the Lordship of Christ? Loving God and serving His agenda. That's a question worth repeating. Does your outward works demonstrate a life lived by the Spirit under the leadership of Christ, both loving God and serving His agenda? That's the point of good works. To live a life under the leading of the Spirit by His power and His enabling and His conviction and His calling under the Lordship of Christ because He's called us to do so in demonstration of both our love for God and His agenda of saving the world. If you do good works in the name of Christ, if you bear fruit in every good work for the glories of God, then you have the immense privilege of displaying the heart and work of Jesus in your life. What greater calling is there for us? What, what greater opportunity is there for us? What else stirs our heart or should stir our heart to, to such eagerness and delight than being able to represent Jesus in this world? Not only with our speech, but even how we carry ourselves, even by our conduct, even what we involve ourselves in. The gospel does a tremendous, wonderful work in our hearts. Christ takes us from the old self to the new self. Christ takes us from sons and, and daughters of disobedience to sons and daughters of righteousness. From orphans to adopted children of God. And that work happens so that we might display it to others around us. Why else does God leave us on this wretched planet for so long? Why else are we not immediately with Enoch ushered into the glories of God upon regeneration? And why else would God take so long and make us endure so long the process of sanctification? For some of us, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years you spend on this earth going through the process, slow, sometimes painful process of sanctification. Why? Because in a moment, you're glorified with God and the process is over. At some point, 
You're never sanctified to perfection. So at some point, you die, and God fast-forwards the process in a moment. Why on earth does He linger out this process of sanctification? It's so that through our process of sanctification, through our process of becoming more like Christ, the world may take notice and see God's goodness displayed in us. You are left here until either you die or Christ comes back to display through your good works the beauty and glory of the transforming work of Christ. Your life isn't pointless. And your good works aren't pointless. And your obedience to Christ isn't pointless. And your painful endurances aren't pointless. In everything in your life that God uses to sanctify you, you have the chance to display the beauty and glory of Jesus. That He doesn't give up on sinners. That He is incredibly patient that salvation is secured for eternity. That He is a loving Father. And that He uses cracked and imperfect and broken vessels to do His bidding in this world. At every turn, you and I get to represent Jesus to the people around us. That's the purpose of bearing fruit in every good work. Your sanctification isn't pointless, church. And your lingering here in this wretched world isn't pointless. You want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? You want to fully please Him with this, with this life that you've been given as long, however long it may be? Bear fruit in every good work, if for anything, for obedience to Christ and to display the power of the gospel in your life. We are, by God's grace, new creatures who live in subjection now to the Lordship of Jesus. And if anything... Our verbal witness to that and our good work witness to that should tell the people around us that truth and reality. Paul says this in a, in a negative sense in the book of Titus again. I've referenced it several times. Maybe we should go through Titus at some point. It's good. Titus chapter 1 verse 16. Talking about false teachers and and specifically hypocrites, he says, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by what? Their works. The content of your life will never save you. But the content of your life as a Christian will reveal whether or not you really know God. Good works are important. They're important to God. They're important for the witness of the gospel. Do your good works. Back up your profession. Let me, let me just pause here and say this. I'm not by any way, shape, or form calling for your perfection. Because none of us are perfect. This word that Paul uses in verse 10, bearing, implies a process Fruit in every good work and doing every good work for the glory of God doesn't happen with a snap of a finger and doesn't happen overnight, unfortunately. Like with anything in our Christian journey, it is a process. Bearing is a process. Bearing fruit. Bear fruit in every 
good work. The gospel always requires a verbal presentation. A nonverbal gospel presentation is no presentation at all. It always requires a verbal presentation. But the good works of your life either lend credibility or discredit that message and presentation. Be careful to do good works in the name of God. Imperfectly, but sincerely. So thirdly, in regards to bearing good works, good works are the way that we actually honor Christ with our lives. We abide in Him and we are motivated by a relationship with Him to do good works and that is how we honor God with our lives. Again, don't waste your time. Spend your years, your minutes, your seconds here honoring God with how you spend your money and how you spend your time and how you interact in your relationships and everything else you can think to fill in the blank. I want to ask this question before I go any further. We asked it last week, but I think it's important to ask again. Actually, we asked it a few weeks ago, but anyways, the question is this. Why do you do what you do? What's your motivation for your good work specifically? Because God in the Bible is very much concerned with our motives. And when the Bible calls us to do good works, specifically in this verse, to bear good works, to honor Christ with your life, it's calling us to bear good works in the name of Christ for the sake of Christ, not for our own benefit. There are ample benefits to doing good works. God blesses us and rewards us for doing good works. Absolutely. But for the Christian, we would still do good works even if there were no rewards or blessings. Because that's what God calls us to do. That's what displays the gospel. That's what honors Jesus. So our good works are never meant to just merely puff ourselves up, make ourselves feel good, to garner a good reputation, or to earn favor from somebody. We are motivated now purely out of a new relationship with Jesus Christ. That new relationship, that abiding as Jesus describes it in John chapter 15, is where we begin to bear fruit in our good works. Jesus likens himself to a vine in John 15 and says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me if you want to bear fruit. Depending on Christ, abiding in Christ, being motivated out of a relationship with Christ is where we bear fruit in our good works that glorify God. So now we are a people who no longer work for our agenda or our sake. We work for the glory of God in his name's sake. Let me just wrap up by reiterating some things I've already said. First being this good works are not optional. They are required to live a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Christian faith isn't a stagnant faith, a lazy faith, or an inactive faith. It's a faith that produces something within us, namely, God working in and through us. So we seek to be obedient, to display the gospel, and to honor Christ. And all of that means that any attempt to rationalize or excuse, make up an excuse to not do good works is not godly behavior, but selfish, sinful behavior. 
born-again Christians instead say yes to good works and instead say yes to ministry so that they might please and honor God by serving Him in His name for His glory. The question becomes now, by way of application, what ministry are you regularly doing in your life that would honor God? I'm not talking about Bible reading. I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm not talking about going to Bible study with your friends. I'm asking what good works, what area of ministry are you serving in regularly that honors God, displays the gospel, and is an act of obedience on your life? Because that's our calling. That's what we give ourselves to. Well, I'm a little bit in a pickle because I wanted to continue on into verse 10 to talk about knowing God. That's if we have anything to say this morning, we have the most to say about knowing God. In fact, I was going to even teach tonight a continued portion of what it means to know God. But I must stop here. By I think the spirit's leading, so I don't know what that means for me tonight. I don't know what I'll do tonight, I guess. Let me let me stop here and, and reiterate again something else that is resting on my heart and mind. As significant as it is to bear good works, bear fruit in our good works in this life, as significant it is as it is to be obedient to God and display the beauty of the gospel and honor Christ, I must say with absolute clarity, you cannot do that apart from first having a saving relationship with Jesus. No amount of ministry involvement, no amount of service, no amount of good works will ever earn you justification before God. No amount of good works will ever earn you saving favor before God. You can do all the good works that your mind can conceive of apart from God. And you will still spend eternity in hell separated from him. The things we're talking about today are things that the Christian does. Things that are written to a church. Things that come after salvation. Things that are built upon the first foundation in verse 9. The foundation of knowing, applying, believing the gospel of God. Only then can you bear fruit in every good work as Paul is talking about. Only once your guilt is pardoned in Christ. Can you actually begin to live to serve Christ? Never get those two things out of order. Salvation must come first. Faith and repentance in Christ must come first. But once it has come, make no mistake, believer. You are then called to the great adventure and joy of honoring God and pleasing Him with the way you live this life. This life that you've been given. The first way you do that is by spending yourself in serving this world in His name. 